0: Well, good morning, church. So good to be with all of you this morning as we uh, continue our journey into this extraordinary discovery of God's word. So, we are in the book of Romans, as most of you know, uh, journeying through this book as Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to the church in Rome. And really, in this book, is unpacking the uh, wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive story of God, Uh, in its intricacies, in its simplicity. Uh, in, in all of its beauty, and, and he's covering all the bases on the gospel. And most recently, we have found ourselves uh, in Romans chapter 9, uh, kind of entering into 10, uh, dealing with the story of God and how he uh, is working out his redemptive plan throughout history. And, and Romans 9 is a fascinating chapter. Uh, because in Romans chapter 9, uh, you encounter God uh, in a little bit of an unexpected way uh, if you've traveled in the standard kind of picture of who God is. Because I think for me at least, uh, I grew up most of my uh, journey kind of uh, with this idea that, that God was, uh, because He loves us so much, pursuing me, uh, pursuing us. And so in his pursuit of us, the picture that I kind of had in my head was, you know, that I'm kind of doing my thing, and, and God is sending all of these different means and ways to try to capture my attention, win my heart, and then at a certain point, if I am captured by all of that, and I make the decision to go ahead and give myself to him, then there's a giant party thrown in heaven, and everybody's excited that I made the right decision, to follow God, I mean that's kind of the picture. Eh? That's the pursuit of God, right? Doing my thing, and he's he's coming to try to get me, and he's, he's hopeful. And then you run into Romans chapter nine, right? There's other passages in Scripture like it. This is one of them, where you are immediately confronted by the absolute sovereignty of God, and it feels a little different than that picture I had. Romans chapter nine, you know, I mean, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, because I did. And I did it before they were born so that they had done nothing to demonstrate in any way any human effort that would cause me to respond to them in love or hatred. And you're like, whoa, 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 what? Pharaoh, I hardened his heart so that the story of redemption might play out in Egypt the way I needed it to. Uh, did you ask his permission? No. Nope. See, Everything in Romans chapter 9 starts coming forward in the sense that God is doing what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants, and he's not asking anyone's permission, and he's not seeking anyone's advice. He is affecting his story exactly as he sees fit And we are part of that story. And he does with us what he wants with us. I mean, insofar as Romans 9 saying, who is the clay to say to the potter, this is how you should handle the clay. This is what you should make out of the clay. And he says, I will make out of the same lump of clay, the human story, vessels for wrath and vessels for mercy. And I'm not taking votes. Listen, When I first encountered God in these spaces, as much as we've traveled beautifully through Romans chapter 9, and we're encouraged that God is in control and writing a story, when we really face it head on, we are facing the reality that God is a dictator, and that's rough. I don't know if it's rough for you. It was rough for me. (laughs) That's just not how I think about God. He's the dictator God. Do you like that? Does that sound warm and fuzzy to you? Didn't to me. I mean, listen listen to this. I'm going to read to you the the definition of dictator in the dictionary, okay? And two things are going to happen when I read this. You're going to go, yep, that's why I hate dictators. And yep, that sounds like Romans chapter 9. Watch, okay? (laughs) A person exercising absolute power, especially a ruler who has absolute, unrestricted control in a government without hereditary succession, No one's taking over, no one's behind them, no one voted them in, no one tells them what to do, no one checks them, no one balances them, no one's involved. We call that a dictator. Do you like dictators, anybody? No, we don't like dictators. You see, we don't like dictators because we shouldn't, because dictators are dangerous, right? What why is it so hard for us when we encounter Romans 9 and we encounter God essentially presenting Himself as a dictator? Why is it so hard for us? I want to walk with you today through a journey that I've taken in these areas and how I have wrestled and and discovered the beauty in God's sovereignty uh, through a hard walk of trying to reconcile uh, this good, loving God pursuing me, and yet one who can do what whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and he does, P.S. Not just can do it. Oh, God could do it, but he would never do anything to you or me that would be against our will. No, no, he will. And so you're like, whoa, how do I reconcile that? Well, it began with asking a big question. Why is it so hard for me? Why is it so hard for us uh, when we encounter God as dictator? And, And I'll tell you why it's so hard for us, okay? We here in America live in a democracy, Anybody happy about that? Okay, it's not confusing. You should be. Yes, I'm happy too, okay? Why are you happy about a democracy? Because in a democracy, you've been taught, as I have, that the power lies with the? people not with any one person right and it is the collective of the people that makes the system work because those in leadership that are given power over people are held accountable by the people because they are not there to serve themselves but to serve the people people. and if they don't serve the people what do the people do? They vote them out. So every leader knows if I don't at least pretend to serve the people, they're going to vote me out, right? So most of our leaders don't really serve us, but they sure do a great job of pretending to, right? As would you or I, because we are human and we struggle between whether we are serving ourselves or serving others, we do that in our marriages and our friendships, for crying out loud, so our leaders certainly do. And the reason it keeps them in check is because they do that, they wrestle with that like we do, it keeps a balance of power, and so God rightly knew that in any human context, Power must always be uh, in, the, in plurality, in, in, in the larger collective. So, even in the church, how does God set up the leadership structure in the church? By a single pastoral leader? No. no by a incredible leadership of plurality through elders and deacons, right? And elders standing in plurality to govern the the church and shepherd the church. If you're ever part of a church that has a singular pastoral leadership with no real accountability in plurality, you ought not to be part of that because it is a dangerous place because any human given power that is unrestricted will end up being corrupted in some format because we are corruptible, okay? And we wrestle still with our flesh that is very corruptible and we struggle till the day we take our last breath between whether I exist for you, whether I exist for me, or whether I exist for God. And that is a constant wrestle for me as a human, as it is for every human. So, human beings with unrestricted power are corruptible and ultimately become corrupted. So absolute power corrupts. Hence, whenever we encounter a dictator on planet Earth that has no restriction, what do they always end up being? Insane maniacs, right? And we want to get them out of the story, not keep them in the story. And so our safety is that we are a collective with the power to move leaders in and out and to influence those leaders because they know at the end of the day we hold the cards to vote them in or out. And that's what makes democracy so powerful. It makes it powerful because we are their checks and balances and ultimately they serve us, we don't serve them. There it is. And then we encounter God. And he describes himself as dictator. And it's hard because who's checking God? What if God decides to do things we don't like? What if he doesn't serve us? You see, we were bred to ask these questions. That's why it's hard. But there's a piece of the equation we are not considering because it's hard to consider because we have no context for it. And that is this. The reason leadership must exist in plurality on planet earth is because every leader is corruptible, flawed, right? What if a leader wasn't? What if a leader was not flawed, was not corruptible, would not be corrupted by absolute power? That in fact, they were in so, in so many ways goodness personified that their best form of leadership would be unrestricted by a corruptible collective. Because let me just be honest. We believe secretly that individuals with absolute power will be corrupted, but the collective will not be corrupted because they're together. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the, the, the IQ of a human diminishes by every additional collective in the crowd. (laughs) I'm just saying. So the larger the crowd, the lower the IQ. That is scientific, people. I'm not kidding, right? That's a legit. So actually, the larger the collective, the more stupid we become. And we are as equally corruptible as a collective as we are as individuals. It's just that individuals exert power without checks and balances in the corruption, whereas the collective still feels for each other because you're one of the each other. You with me? But if you had a, a leader that was uncorruptible and personified goodness, the best form of leadership would be an unrestricted form without the vote from the corruptible majority. You with me? And that's where we actually stand with God. God is uncorruptible, He's uncorruptible. He cannot be corrupted. Do you know why not? Because he sovereignly sustains all things that exist. Sin itself, which is the virus that causes death, cannot even exist if God chooses for sin not to exist. The only reason God has patiently endured the work of sin on planet earth is because if he were to destroy sin before he has rescued his people, then the people that are still corrupted by sin and the sin virus would have to die along with sin. Because remember, we are children of wrath. Uh, We are sin itself until he rescues us. So He sin itself can't corrupt him because it is dependent on his power to even exist. So when he took on sin, all of the sin of the world, did sin corrupt him or did he eliminate sin? He rose from the dead, folks. Just saying. So you see, we face a leader that we have no context for, which is why it's so hard to imagine him as a dictator. But if we just took some time to think about who he actually is, we start going, hold on. Hold on. The disaster would be that the corruptible majority tries to tell him what to do. Because God is not good. He is goodness itself. God is not just. He is justice. God is not wise. He is wisdom. God defines these things. They are because of Him. You with me? Goodness is goodness because God is goodness. God is not good. And so when we face this particular dictator who is uncorruptible and in every way, with every decision, in every step he takes, he has access to absolute knowledge and absolute power and absolute wisdom and absolute goodness and absolute justice and absolute holiness and he is uncorruptible by anything, that is a dictator that you want to follow. And you see, then you realize that the true form of government that is actually at its best is a dictator leader with unrestricted power who is absolutely good. But we have no such thing on planet earth, so we need a democracy. And I'm glad we have one. But we don't need a democracy with God. In fact, a democracy is the demise of His rule And thankfully, he's powerful enough not to affect a democracy in his rule. But it would be the demise because we we are the corruptibles. So I walk into this and I go, okay, Romans chapter 9. You are my sovereign leader, the dictator of the entire story. You do what you want, when you want, how you want with any human being. But I can trust in everything that you do that what you do will be rightly redemptive. Even if from my vantage point, what you're doing in the immediate doesn't seem redemptive. So it forces my soul to ask a much, much bigger question. Not am I okay with a dictator, but do I believe God is good? Do you see how important that is for our souls? Do you really believe God is good? Do you really believe he's wise? Do you really believe he is powerful in his knowledge and wisdom? Do you really believe he personifies justice? Because if your soul does, then you will have no fear with him as dictator. The trouble with us is we are still halfway stuck in the garden episode, aren't we? With Adam and Eve. Where it was between them knowing all of God's goodness, all of his personified wonder. And when given the choice between the knowledge of good and evil so that they would know like he knows. And just knowing him, they chose knowledge over God. And the knowledge corrupted them, it didn't save them. God was their salvation. And when we question with difficulty this reality of how can God be this kind of dictatorial leader, what we're really doing is stepping back into the garden and saying, has God considered our needs, our desires, what is right and good? What if he doesn't? See, when God is about rescuing his people and about pursuing his people, and he does pursue us, but not in the way we picture in our heads, like we're doing what we want, and God is hopeful that he'll convince us to come. When God pursues us, let me just say this. You will not get away. He comes for you, and he rescues you. That's what he does. That is his pursuit of me, that I am deserving of being left to myself, and he doesn't. When he does that, and I question who he pursues and why he pursues, what I'm really questioning is whether I know more than him. And whether I'm, I I have a greater grasp on justice than he does. A greater grasp on the grand redemptive story than he does. A greater grasp on what is right and good than he does. See, when it comes to my children and my loved ones and the people I love, if I look at myself or I look at them and I ask myself, would I rather place their destinies in my hands or their hands or in the hands of a God who is goodness personified? Folks, I want them in his hands because he will always make the better decision for them than I will, or than they will for themselves. This is our dictator God. So when I finally come to a point where I'm like, okay, okay, you do it all. You do the rescuing, you do the pursuing, you do the convincing, you do the changing, you do the transforming, you do it all, and I, and I become somewhat comfortable with that because of his goodness, I walk out of chapter 9, and I'm like, got it. There's a people you are rescuing for yourself, and out of curiosity, how on earth do I know if, if, if I'm part of this story, and how do I know if others are, and how do I know who I'm supposed to talk to, and I, I don't know, and then we enter Romans chapter 10, which we're going to get into not today, but over the next few weeks, because today we're just journeying through how I've wrestled with this. Romans chapter 10 is a, is a crazy, fascinating passage, because Romans 9 is basically like God, God, God right? You don't really do anything. And then Romans chapter 10 is you, you, you. If if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth, if, if you, if you, if you, then you are saved. And so we stand with these two chapters and they are super confusing when you collide the two because it looks like Romans 9 says God is doing all of this as he sees fit with whom he ever with whom he sees fit. And then Romans 10 is if you do these things, then you are saved. So which is it, folks? Is it God doing it, or do we need to do some stuff? And, well, and so I, I encountered that, and I'm like, how do you reconcile those things? And so as you begin to wrestle, your first response, at, at least mine was, is this, oh, good, Romans chapter 10 really undoes what I thought Romans chapter 9 was saying. God is sovereign, and he's a dictator God, but Romans chapter 10 undoes that. No, I was just kidding. He's not. Uh, it's also up to you. And, and I just said, that it's confusing. But you see, that's not what Romans chapter 10 does at all. Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 9, as they come together, give us a beautiful display of the simplicity of the gospel, but also the intricacy of the gospel. Because remember, Romans 1 through 11 is laying the redemptive story of God, the gospel, out for us in all of its parts, some which we can see clearly and some which will be difficult to comprehend because they are beyond our comprehension. But he still needs to show us so that we know. We don't have to know the details, but we have to know there's more to it than we know. You with me? How many of you guys ever taught someone to drive a car? I'm currently teaching three teenagers to drive a car, and I just got one out the door to college, and she's driving a car, and my three teenagers are at different stages in the game, so one is driving, but I'm tweaking, and one has never set foot in a car, so we're going to at some point, and one has set foot in a car, but barely, and so I'm like, I'm in stages, and I've got more to come, so... um, I'm getting quite used to what it means to teach someone how to drive. Now, when you're going to teach someone to drive, just out of curiosity, if you've ever done it, have you ever gone out to the car and spent five or six hours before you bring your teenager with their permit out, uh, lifted up the hood, pulled the engine out of the car, pulled it into all of its working parts, laid them out in the driveway, and then brought them out with a manual that they had to study for weeks beforehand and said, now, we're going to work our way through the engine. I want you to understand every part of the engine and exactly how it works, and I want you to know why, when you push the gas pedal or the brake or turn the steering wheel, the car does what it does. Anybody ever done that? At some point, a hand's going to go up, and it's going to be a mechanic, and I'm be like, you're awesome, but you're not normal. So (laughs) the rest of us normal people, we don't do that. Do you need to understand how the engine works in order to drive a car? No, you don't. Do any of you actually understand how an engine works? Two hands go up. No, nobody really knows. A few people, right? Because we don't need to know. When it breaks and you stand on the side of the road with the hood up staring into it as though you're looking for something but you have no idea what you're looking for other than smoke, you just know it's not working anymore and you call someone that knows. Do you need to know what the steering wheel does? Uh, by the way, that's a yes. <laughs> if some of you are like, Steering wheel? Don't drive home, okay? (laughs) Yes, you need to know. So when I'm teaching one of my kids to drive, I don't open the hood. I don't show them the engine. I just put them in the driver's seat. I sit in the passenger seat, and before we ever start a car, I show them some things. This is the steering wheel. If you turn it this way, the car goes that way, that way. This is the brake. You have your foot on the brake at all times without an exception. This is the gas pedal. It does nothing. Don't ever use it, right? So we go through, and we show them these different things. This is the gear shifter. It has letters, and each letter means something. It's the start of a word and you should remember which letter is which because the car reacts differently depending on the letter that you put it on. And once they get a handle on what these things do, the belief is that if I push the gas pedal, the gas pedal actually makes the car go or stop. Does the gas pedal actually do that? No, the gas pedal only sparks into sequence, a sequence of events that leads to a combustion within an engine, uh, fireballs doing all sorts of stuff in small places uh, that should kill us all but has been very carefully contained. That then drives to drive shafts that make the wheels turn. I mean, all this crazy stuff. And then the car just goes forward. And the steering wheel is connected to millions of intricate parts. And they're all held together with a thousand nuts. And if any one of those nuts came, come loose, you die. <laughs> don't you just feel wonderful about driving? You are driving in a death machine with millions of nuts that have to stay in place or you don't make it. But you never think about that because they're there and they're in place. And somebody put it all together and it works. And all you need to know is what is simple, what is right in front of you so you can drive the car. Now, it's not a bad idea on occasion to jump in and get to know a little bit more about your engine and about your working of your car, so when something simple goes wrong, you have a bit of a clarity, and you can at least tell the mechanic, I, I think it's the, it's, it's the wheel, or I, I think it's this, because I, I I've looked at some stuff, but you don't have to, you don't have to. But, but you ought to know that what makes the car actually do what it does is not the gas pedal, the brake, and the steering wheel. Those are just the things that you get to experience that help you participate in the going of the car. This is what Romans 9 and 10 is. Romans 9, the hood goes up. The engine comes out. Ka-dink! The parts are laid out. And you're staring with a bit of confusion and fear. It's complicated. It's too much. It's too big. I don't know what to do. And then God goes, don't worry. You don't have to understand all of this but I do want you to be aware that when you think you're doing it all, you're not. I've put all this together. I make all of this work and that's what makes this story go round and round the way it needs to. So when you push the little gas pedal, you confess with your mouth or, you, or you, you, hit, you, you, you turn the steering wheel, you believe in your heart. These are good things and you are part of them and you are without a doubt a participant in the, in the story of this car but those things are not what make all of this work I do. Now, having said that, when the car moves, when you are transformed and you know you belong to me because you have believed, know that it's because you believed and because you confessed. That's awesome. But also remember, back to the engine real quick, Romans 9, who is the author of our faith that we thought we brought to God as a gift to him so he could respond to us with salvation? <laughs> Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, therefore fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith you see what, what, what Romans 9 and 10 are doing in, in their beautiful collision is to say this story is not a guessing game for you you don't have to wonder whether you belong to God you don't have to wonder whether he, he loves you he does do you believe in your heart? Do you, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? boom! done! steering wheel Gas pedal, you got it, that's awesome. Isn't that awesome, the confidence we have in what we experience and what we get to, what we get to express? But remember always, Romans 9, you aren't the engine. You aren't the engine. God's doing that. Do you see that beauty? So I get there and I go, okay. So there's a part of the story that I tangibly experience and express and there's a part of the story that I know that God is just doing and he is the doing one, and I am the experiencing and expressing one. Because I am an image bearer of God, I am an expression of God. I am not God, and that's beautiful. It's, there's a safety in that. Why is there a safety in that? Who's going to make sure the car gets to where it's going to go? God is all the time. He he keeps it doing. He keeps the story going because he is the author of the story and he is the finisher of the story in every way. But I get to be in the car driving and participating. It's a Wondrous and mysterious relationship between the sovereignty of God and the participation of man, one that will finish the story and one that is unnecessary, but yet invited to be part of us. It's beautiful. Now, that's all good and fine. And I've got the part now in terms of how God pursues me and my part in the story that it's really a, a, a part of expressing and experiencing what God is already doing. But then a question begins to linger. And if it hasn't for you already, it will. Because if God's got the story covered and he's going to write it redemptively and he's going to finish every good work he began and he's going to take care of pursuing his people in Indonesia and China and the Amazon jungle and Claremont, Florida, right? Then you can relax now. You know all that missional work you were going to do? All that deep, I'm going to go and preach the gospel because people need to hear and then to go, you don't have to do it anymore because he's got it. He's gonna get it done without you. So then the question is why on earth would you participate in any way, in any kind of mission on God? Why would you spend resources to go reach unreached people groups? Or why would you go to other places? Why would you step into your local community and engage in serving people and, and helping people so that they would know and understand Jesus? Why would you even share the gospel in your workplace in that awkward environment? Because you don't need to do that because God's got it covered, right? And certainly, why on earth would you ever step into redemptive stories that are messy where you are engaging and serving uh, the world and, and then it ends up costing you emotionally and costing you resources and costing you your soul? Why would you do that? And if you ever did that because you kind of felt a little bit of a tug when it got really hard, why don't you just bail? See, these are real questions, aren't they? Why should we get involved with God if God's going to get it done without us? In this hard mission on planet earth. Mm. So we, uh, we live in a consumer culture, you and me. Boy, we're dysfunctional. We live in a democracy that's awesome for the human race, but actually is a fairly dysfunctional version of governments because we're corruptible, right? So we got all sorts of wrong ideas there about God. And then we live, we live also in a, in a consumer culture, which means that what is it that we need to do first and foremost to be part of this culture? Consume things. That's why we consume lots, we consume more than the rest of planet earth combined, right? We consume electronics. We consume fast food. We consume giant meals at restaurants that's portions our way out of control. We consume, I mean, we consume a new electronic every three minutes when the old one is set to work for four decades. I mean, it's kind of insane. We're just consumers because that's what makes us valuable in a culture that's a consumer culture. What makes you valuable, what ha- makes you a part of this culture is that you're consuming. And since consuming is such a high value, what do you need in order to consume things? You need money and you need things because you can't consume what doesn't exist. So what became of high value in our cultural context was production. If you produce something, then you're awesome. If you produce nothing or you try to produce something and you fail, then you, you, kind, you, you don't kind of matter. That's what we believe. It's not true, but it's what we believe. So what's happened to us over generations now is that we extract the the majority of our value from the things we do and the things we produce and the things we consume. We 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 gain value from the doing and then what is produced in the doing and then what we get to consume because we've gotten reward for what we produced. You with me so far? There's the entire cycle. And so we have forgotten ourselves as human beings. That actually what gives us value is not consumption and production. It is actually relationship. A relationship first and foremost with our creator who tells us who we are and out of him telling us we extract value. And if we were able to actually believe our value purely from his declaration, do you know that you would have no anxiety, you would have no fear, you would have no insecurity, you would be able to love unconditionally, you would be a person that would be able to enjoy human relationships without trouble, regardless of how they treat you, because you would be absolutely convinced of your deep intrinsic value because Jesus said you were valuable. How many of you guys live there? Because I don't. I struggle every day because I'm trying to navigate who's telling me what and what have I accomplished and what haven't I and how do people feel about that. And so what have we become obsessed with? We've become obsessed with production, right? And then consumption, but mostly production. And so if I'm going to go do something, I want to go do it because I know that in me doing it, it will produce something that otherwise would not have been produced thereby becoming valuable to the equation because I produced something. And if I didn't do it, it wouldn't be. And if it's going to be, even if I don't do it, then why would I do it? Unless I would get rewarded for it. Then I would do it first before everybody else. So I could, I could, I could get rewarded. That's how we function. But what God describes in scripture in our relationship with him is that this entire thing is not about duty and obligation or even about compassion and need. It is about worship and relationship. Let me explain. You see, most of us are driven to go share the gospel or to go live on mission because we feel the duty... Because we have compassion for people. It's a, it's a people-focused reality. There are people out there that are struggling because they don't know Jesus and they don't have stuff. And so we go out and we meet those needs because we're compassionate for them. And we've been given the calling, the responsibility to go out and tell them. And if we don't tell them, then who's going to? So there is a duty and there is a compassion. Is duty and compassion uh, something that we ought to have? You can say it louder. Yes, you guys, I, I love You're like, Yes, it's a, it's a trick question. No, it's not. You should be compassionate for people and you should feel the, the beautiful responsibility of our calling to go into all the world and be redemptive, right? But that cannot and should not be the primary reason that we live on mission. Because if it is, it will not ultimately be sustainable. One, because your compassion for people will run out, I promise you. Just get old enough. People are insane, they, they, are, they, they are hard, especially the ones you love. I mean, yeah, I, I get it right now. It's beautiful, but it gets hard and then it gets beautiful and then it gets hard. And then it gets be- it's just an unpredictable roller coaster ride with humans and you will run out of compassion. They, they actually have a psychological term for it, compassion fatigue. It's beautiful. You will also justify duty any time of the week because duty is something we can, obligation we can move in and out of. An obligation will drive you at first, but it will never sustain you. What God describes in our relationship with him is that when we discover what he's done for us in view of God's mercy, we then present ourselves as living sacrifices to him. I'm getting ahead of myself, that's Romans 12, but here's the deal. And so our entire life becomes an active act of worship, not an active act of duty, an active act of relationship, not an active act of compassion. Yes, there's compassion involved, but we're doing it because our master asked us to and we're doing it because we love being with our master and sharing in the story with him because we get to let's get back to cars for a second anybody ever changed the oil in their car Look at you guys. You guys are so awesome. Okay. I have changed the oil on my car too. I've done several things on my car over the years, primarily because I was broke back then and I had to do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't get done. So I pulled the little manual out and and, and I regularly made a mess of it and then had to go back and try to regroup. But you know what one of the funnest things are when you get under a car and you start working when you're in a family dynamic is when one of your kids come out and they see you under the car and they're like, "Eh, Dad, can I help? And there is that moment of panic, isn't there? Like, oh my gosh, help. I mean, what does that word even mean, help? I mean, you're not going to (laughs) help. And so your, your brain immediately goes to like, what tasks can I give the child that won't disrupt the entire planet, right? Because <laughs> you're already imagining all the oil, dr- you know, they, I, can I touch that button? No, <clears throat> no, right? So you're like, okay, you lay over there on the side and hand me the tools I want and then you make up tools for them to hand you and you set them next to you here while you continue to work so they feel like they're part of things. But the truth of the matter is, Despite that initial thought of panic, you then regroup and you're like, no, hold on, this is a great opportunity. Have my son or my daughter crawl under the car with me and, and I, can, I can teach them how to change the oil. It might come in handy someday when they're broke and I'm not paying for it. And so they can come in, right? And, and so they get in there and you, and you start. And it complicates the story a bit. It, it, it takes more time than it would have if you just did it yourself. But at the same time, it is a beautiful moment. And oddly enough, what you discover in life, if you've been a parent for long enough, is that your kids don't really remember lots of the things they produced. I mean, you pull them out of the kindergarten. Oh my gosh, look at the beautiful picture you made. Put it away! They don't remember ever drawing that picture. They don't remember the history test from 2007. But I'll tell you, talk to your kids. They remember the, that board game they played with you. Or they, or they remember that time they got under the car and changed the oil with you. Or they, or they remember that time where they, where they went out on the hunt with you. Or they went out on that, on that service project with you. Or they stepped into, you you name it. That fishing trip you took, whatever it is, they remember those. Why? Because they produced anything? No. Because there is something profoundly wondrous to the soul when we share together in something and one of us realizes we're doing something bigger than ourselves. See, my kid, when they're under the car changing oil with me, I, I show them, they do, unscrew this, and then that's going to do that. Now, don't touch that button. And, and when they're done changing the oil, we crawl out from under the car, right? Hands dirty, all messy, and we go in the house. What do I say to, to, to my wife? I changed the oil and this inconvenient little kid disrupted the entire process, but we got through it anyways. No, no. I go in the house and I'm like, hey, honey, my son and I, my daughter and I, we changed the oil. Oh, he did such a great job. Oh, my goodness. I think he knows how to do it now. Serious. You're not going to let him do it by himself next. No, no, shh. Just leave it. It's fine. And, And how does that kid feel? Does the kid deeply understand that they couldn't change the oil without me? Yeah, I mean, they know. It was way too complicated. Do I know I could have changed the oil without them? Yes, but what what happened is two profound things. One, the child did something they knew is impossible that they got to participate in because the father was there. Doing it and letting the child participate. And two, they did something that only dad should be able to do and they did it with him. And so they are profoundly connected to dad in a way they weren't before that moment. When we understand our part in the story, our obsession, our passion, our joy doesn't become the production or the result of a missional life. It becomes the profound wonder of sharing in relationship with God while doing something bigger than we ought to be able to. Because he's actually doing it and we're just participating in it. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages in scripture, honestly. I come back to it so often because it is perhaps, in my opinion, the greatest quick summary of the entire gospel, uh, the entire redemptive story of God. So I just wanna read this to you real quick because everything we just said is found here and then there's this beautiful freedom that is the final piece of the puzzle for me that caused me to go. I want a dictator God who is, who is the essence of goodness that is driving the car and the engine and I get to hold the steering wheel and, and work with him in changing the oil. I, I want that sequence so that my, my, my heart and mind are in the right place and I'm free. And, and this is where it ran. Watch this, Ephesians chapter two, verse one. to the point that we had no desire or capacity to pursue God. Is that clear enough? But God, and the deep desire we had, no, no, there's just a but God. You see the rest of the stuff in there. But God, comma, nothing else. But God, God alone, God only, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I love that he added that sentence back in so that we wouldn't be confused that somehow between the dead in our transgressions and God loving us with his great love, that there was an invisible transition where we kind of said something nice to God. I know I'm dead in my sin, but I I see you now and I love you. Oh, I love you too. It's not how it worked. While we were still dead. He made us alive. This is still of no work of our own. No response of our own. now. Watch this, watch this. This is so crazy. <clears throat> by grace you have been saved. And it doesn't say after that, through faith. Do you remember the verse like by grace through faith? That actually comes just in a few verses, but the first one is just by grace. He leaves it at this. This is an absolute wonder how God describes his chapter 9 and our chapter 10 in this single paragraph. Watch this. While you were dead, I made you alive, and it was by grace alone. What part did you play in that? Zero. Zero. That's his work. Now, watch this. Watch this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not only has he made us alive, rescued our soul, but he has redeemed our future. He has established our future. And he describes our future as an encounter with an immeasurable richness of God's grace experienced through his kindness to us. You with me so far? Are we going to doubt the absolute goodness of God when we leave this planet? No, we're not. Because he will lavish upon us such kindness that we will not have any reason or capacity to doubt his goodness. We will Live with the greatest joy under the dictatorship of God for the rest of eternity because we will know him in his absolute wonder. We just don't right now yet because we're stuck in these things, these bodies, blindly trying to stare dimly through glasses. But we will know his kindness. Now watch this, watch this. Here we go. Whoops, Bible went to a different place. Ephesians chapter two. Here we go, watch. Watch. <clears throat> For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ah, ah, there's that part. See, we, we, we projected faith. We expressed faith. We believed in our heart. We confessed with our mouth. So it is by grace and through faith that this happened. Yes, absolutely. And what God is transitioning into here is this. I do this work. I am the, I am the worker and creator and an ongoing mover of the story and the car and the engine. But you are a participant both in your own salvation as well as the salvation of others. Not because I need you to, but because it's so thrilling to have you be part of it. I am inviting you under the car with me. And you're going to get to be part of this. And here's how it's going to work. Salvation is by grace through faith. So there is God affecting grace. And part of his grace is that he makes us alive when we were dead. And part of our coming alive is that something is born in us. What is born in us? Faith. Who authors that faith? Already said it. Jesus. And then what do we get to do with the faith that was given to us as a gift? We get to express it. We believe and we confess. And suddenly we are part of the story that we have no business being part of, but he makes us a part of it by equipping us for it. Whose work is it still? Ours or his? How do we know? Because look at the next sentence. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of it, right? Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Take glory. Now watch this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what he says. You don't just get to participate with a bit of faith you get to participate in the entire redemptive story in your generation during your time because I have prepared in advance as a part of the great good work that I'm doing, the redemptive story I started that I will bring to completion and the good work I will finish in everyone and making everything new, I have included in that story a part for you to play and I have made you for that part. Why? Because I need you to play the part? No, because it is nothing. There's nothing more thrilling than watching your son or daughter crawl under the car with you and find the giddy wonder of doing something bigger than they imagined while actually just connecting with you. And that's why he says in Romans chapter 12, in response to my mercy, come to me, give yourself to me. And this is your spiritual act of worship. This is where it lands me. And I'm going to end here. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. God is not a participant in my story. I am a participant in his. God is not a participant in my story. I am a participant in his. And in his story, he loves me as a son. He is my father. So he participates in the making of my story by writing it. But he is the story writer. I am the participant. See, we get very confused about this because we've been given the gift of prayer. Prayer is awesome. It's actually a relational dynamic where you get to go to dad and ask for things and dad then affects things uh, on your behalf because you're father's son, right? And he gets to transform things in you. So prayer is a beautiful gift, but prayer confuses us in this endeavor because here's what we think happens. You have a story that you're hopeful for, right? Health and and, and a good story. You wanna do some good. You wanna have enough resources to be able to give some away and keep some. You want your, your kids to turn out well and, and, and you know maybe get married and have kids and grandchildren and it's going to be beautiful and and you just want everybody to be safe and, and you want you know you don't you don't want to be too, too have too much or too little just just enough to have more than you need and you know all all of that stuff so so we have a story that we're trying to create. And then what happens is when the story gets disrupted from our dream, we go to God and we ask him to intervene in our story so that he can make it right again. And then if he doesn't, we try to figure out whether we prayed wrongly, or whether we're behaving wrongly, or that we did something wrongly. Because ultimately, isn't it true that I've got a story that I'm trying to see happen, and I can't really make it happen, so I need God to make it happen for me so he participates in my story so that my story will be a nice story. And then I'll give him the glory for it. It'll be awesome. I have a great story because he's awesome. But that's not what the scriptures describe. Yes, God is intervening in our little story all the time because he is father, but not because our story matters more than his or it's even is our story. His intervention even in our story is about his story. Here's the real story. God is authoring a story and we have no business being in it We should have been left to ourselves a long time ago, but we are recipients of grace and that makes us a part of his story and it tells us who we are and we should live in that identity. And then by his grace, he also invites us to participate actively in the temporal space in that story by crawling under the car every day and helping change the oil, in other words, affect redemption by preaching the gospel in our workplace by going out to Indonesia and the Amazon jungles, by diverting our resources to unreached people groups, by stepping into our local community and serving, by engaging in our marriages or our friendships, or our families in a manner worthy of the gospel, even when we don't want to because people are hurting us, by making the gospel beautiful, even at the cost of ourselves. And our joy is this, that when it goes well, to God be the glory because we are just the participant in a story he is affecting. And when it goes badly, to God be the responsibility because we're not God's, he is. So mission becomes safe because you don't have to produce anything. You're just striving as an act of worship to God and he will produce what he sees fit when he sees fit. How freeing is that? You can't blow it, nor can I. So we're safe to go live on mission because he, he is driving this car You're just getting to sit there (laughs) and get under the car and, "Eh, eh, eh, eh." oh, and when it's all said and done, he'll clean up the mess and he'll make beautiful the story. And we will have gotten the privilege of walking in the house with dad and having him go. (laughs) Renaud and I just, oh my goodness, it was so beautiful. And I'll just stand there going, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But deep down, all I'll be thinking to myself is I can't believe you let me do that and i can't believe you're including me in this that is joy and that is worship let's pray god you are ridiculous as usual in every awesome way you are better than we think you are you are bigger than we think you are you are more beautiful than we think you are you are you are you are goodness beyond our comprehension you are justice you are holiness you are You are the embodiment of all things right. And you are worthy of absolute power. You are worthy of unrestricted authority. And we are wise to submit to that and to trust it. So help us do that. And while we're on this planet with all of our human friends, Help us to have strong democracies and great elder teams in plurality so that us corruptibles won't do stupid stuff. But help us not to buy into that form of leadership and affect it on you because you are not like us. And you don't need us to keep you in check. But we need you to lead us with unrestricted authority because that is our safest place. So help our souls to learn to trust your goodness and your character so that we can trust your ways not because they make sense to us but because you are good and help us to remember that there are parts of the story that seem to be our parts and parts that seem to be yours but ultimately they're all yours and yet we get to be part of it like any great kid who crawls under a car and helps dad change the oil and help us to remember that Our privilege is that we participate in your story and not that you participate in ours. And that that actually gives us safety because you are responsible for the story. And so we don't have to fear every day whether we are going to somehow get it right and produce the wrong thing or the right thing. And so it relieves us from anxiety and panic and fear and shame and guilt because we're just humans getting up in the morning to strive best we can to participate with you in a story guaranteed to be beautiful because you have guaranteed it. And in our mess in the midst of it, we entrust our story to you and trust you with it. To you be the glory, to you be the responsibility. Thanks to you for letting us be part of it. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.